Thanks for joining us for Mississippi Prospects, a podcast focused on economic and community development in our state. Hosted by Jeff Rent and brought to you by the Mississippi Economic Development Council. Once again, Mississippi Prospects is on location from the IP Casino Resort and Spawn Biloxi, Mississippi at the Mississippi Economic Development Council's Exchange Conference. Joining us today is Dee Dee Caldwell, founding principal with Global Location Strategies. For about the last 20 years, Dee has assisted global corporations with their location strategies, in other words, where and how to deploy their assets. She has worked across multiple industry sectors with an emphasis on large manufacturing and heavy industrial projects. Since 1998, Didi has worked on projects totaling more than $35 billion in investments in more than 20 countries. Please welcome Didi Caldwell to Mississippi Prospects. Good morning. Good morning. You know, we've uh, had a chance to talk to a lot of people uh, since we've been here and really excited to have you on. Caught you on MSNBC recently. Uh, talk- My 15 minutes of fame. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and it's it's nice to see people giving a lot of different viewpoints uh, on some of the big projects that have been garnering a lot of headlines lately. So it's always nice to make an acquaintance then uh, of people who are coming in and uh, considered experts in their field. At the MEDC Exchange Conference, uh, you were talking to uh, different groups about site readiness and ready to win. You know, any number of corporate location issues can be considered as a tight priority for site selection consultants, such as workforce, incentives, corporate taxes, permitting speed, cost of doing business, you know, and that's just naming a few. And they often get uh, listed in order of importance. That uh, list will change year to year. Recently, though, available ready sites also has been near or at the top of that list. For communities in Mississippi and anywhere in the U.S., how important of a factor is having a ready site for narrowing down your list of sites for a a new corporate client? Well, I would say it's absolutely critical. Um, You can have the best community in the world. You can have the best workforce. uh, You can have great infrastructure. But if you do not have an available ready site for whatever that project is, then you're going to be eliminated from the list. Now, I will say that there are certain projects that are more site-driven. So the type of projects that I work on are particularly heavy in uh, in their requirements on utilities and transportation infrastructure. So typically, we will look for the site first and then evaluate the community. For projects that are more labor-driven and don't need as much infrastructure, we'll look for the community first that has the right mix of workforce and skills, and then we'll try to figure out whether or not they have a site that also meets our needs. But in both of those cases, if you don't have a site that where or a building where this project can go, then you have zero chance of landing that project. So just because we are aware of a large tract of land that we may or not be able to obtain, uh, don't even bother is what you're saying. It's not going to help you. Yeah, that has really changed in the last 20 years. I mean, when I first started doing this, we would look at anything, you know, just a farm that wasn't being used or, uh, you know, vacant piece of property. But that has really changed. Our timelines are so much shorter than they used to be. So we don't have time to for a community to go through all the steps that would be necessary once they've once we've started a project. We need something that's already ready to go. And the first thing on that list is that is control. Um, You really need control of the site, either through purchasing the site, having an option on it, 
or by getting a letter of intent or a memorandum of understanding from the owner stating that they are willing to sell and the price at which they are willing to sell. So we don't consider it under control unless you have one of those with a price included. I was going to say, we've spoken with other folks that are talking about uh, sites, available sites and all of that. And that's been one of the factors that has killed a number of projects, they said, because uh, the landowner has had a change of heart. Yeah, a change of heart about their willingness to sell or a change of heart about what they're willing to sell it for. It's amazing how when a big corporation comes around, property that was valued at an agricultural level is now tripling, quadrupling in price um, at the last minute because they know that the corporation has deep pockets. And I will say that typically the, um, the cost of the land is not, for the projects that I work on, is not the biggest driver. But but these corporations are, are led by humans. And just like humans in every other venture, they want to think that they got a fair deal. Is there a set or standard criteria that you use in evaluating these sites and whether or not they are ready or meet your standards that you need? Or is it on a project by project basis? Well, every project's going to have different requirements. Um, and so we evaluate the, the site and its ability to meet those specific requirements. But there are certain things that are, are um, apply to all sites. So for example, we want, I mentioned the control, we also would like to have um, phase one environmental completed. And if there were any recommendations um, or recognized environmental concerns to go forward with the phase two, uh, we would like to see wetland delineation already have been performed, and preferably with a current letter from the Corps confirming that that wetland delineation. Um, we also would like to see geotechnical uh, studies, hydrology studies, um, maybe an ALTA survey, tidal search, boundary survey, so that we can feel very confident about what the conditions are at that site, what are any environmental issues that we might encounter, and what we will need to do about them and how that, that would impact our timeline. The standard that communities use really varies within each of those communities and what is a ready site. <laughs> Would it be helpful, I guess, to have sort of a nationwide uh, criteria that everybody could sort of buy into of what is considered a, an approved site, ready Shovel site? Ready site. Shovel ready yes. site, sure. So I, I'm chair of the Site Selectors Guild, which is a organization that consists of 44 of the world's most prestigious site selectors. Um, and that is a discussion that we have been having recently. And we are planning an event, a symposium to have a brainstorming session on this very topic. Um, we would like to where we would like to hear from the economic development world, from construction firms, from uh, civil and engineering firms on can we collectively come together to determine what is a shovel ready site? And I don't mean that specifically for any industry, but what are the common items that need to be conducted in order for a site to be ready for investment? We uh, in Mississippi have recently rolled out a program, uh, Ready Sites, Premier Sites, uh, setting our own definitions of what or criteria to meet those. And the Premier Sites, larger, more amenities, uh, logistically, power, water, uh, all of those. Is that helpful to you to have that list uh, beforehand? Are you seeing that maybe is what I'm really asking before, let's say we have a site that we call a Premier Site. Are you seeing that before a proposal is even submitted? I don't really care what you call it. 
I just want to know that the work has been done. So to the extent that I have confidence in any community or any region or any utility company's site program, site readiness program, whatever they call it, as long as I have confidence that they have been through the rigorous procedure of making sure that that site is ready and documenting all of that, then that will give me confidence. It doesn't mean that I won't also do all of that investigation to make sure that it's there. We can't accept it just on face value, but it is, I think having a program gives an objective for people to strive for. And therefore, I think more sites will be characterized in a more full way if you have a program like that. Are you finding more communities reaching out to you, just throwing information about sites to you saying, hey, we've got this new tract of land and giving you some information on it Does that help you in your day-to-day activities or really only when uh, you're working for a specific client? Yes, I, I, I do get a lot of emails and flyers and postcards and things like that talking about new sites. I tend to glance at those and then um, and then move on. And I don't necessarily retain that information unless I see something that's really unique, such as, um, you know, a navigable water site that's just come online, or perhaps it has dual rail, or ha- perhaps it's a very large site with big Uh, utility infrastructure. So those are the sites that when I talk to economic developers, I encourage them to let me know about those because those are the types of sites that I am most commonly looking for. You mentioned that having a ready site reduces costs. For whom? It reduces costs for the client. Okay. Um, and, And what I mean by that is that these clients are trying to get up and running as quickly as possible, and time is money for them. So if there's a delay uh, in doing the characterization of the site, um, say because we're trying to get a letter from the Corps on wetlands, then that impacts their return on investment because they they are already spending money on that investment, and the longer it takes for it to pay off, the lower their, their return on investment is going to be. It's definitely a big uh, financial impact to those companies. We maintain... Uh- Uh, on one of our website's uh, database of available sites and buildings. Uh, Is this a useful tool for uh, your clients or you in your process that you may go through there and identify a few and say, I'm interested in hearing more about these? We don't typically use those databases. Um, We are so often looking for these types of sites that we have a pretty good sense of where they are. And our relationships, both at the state and local level, with the power companies, with the rail companies, are such that we just reach out to them and talk to them about what sites they may have that meet our criteria. Now, I do think that there are a lot of do-it-yourselfers. So for every project that is represented by a site selection consultant or someone that calls themselves a site selection consultant, um, there's probably at least three or four other projects that are being done by the company themselves or by someone, an advisor that doesn't normally do site selection. And so I think having those databases available online is important for those types of projects. I generally find them not very user-friendly in terms of being able to search for the criteria that I am going to discriminate on. So for example, it may say that there's there's power there, but I don't have any idea if this location could accept, say, a 50 megawatt load. Uh, so that's why those types of databases don't tend to be all that useful for me. And probably because of the area that you probably are doing more projects in, which is the uh, large manufacturing, heavy industrial projects, you know, you're not looking for the the 50-acre, 20-acre sites, you're looking for 
a lot of land, mm-hmm. a yep. lot of water, a lot yes. of power. Yes. I call, um, so I do, do a lot of work in tissue manufacturing and I call that site the Holy Grail because, uh, people have been looking for it for 2000 years. They still haven't found it. it. There's no way to prove that it doesn't exist. And the only way that you can prove that it exists is to find it. So we are still out there searching to find the perfect site. Um, but that's a site that needs, you know, a minimum of 200 acres. It needs rail. Uh, it needs, you know, 25 to 50 megawatts of power, um, 150 to 350 MCF an hour of gas, three and a half million gallons of water a day, two million gallons of wastewater. It needs to be an air quality attainment because of the emissions profile. And it's going to employ several hundred people. So it needs to be in a place that has a, a quality and available workforce. So when you layer all of those things on top of one another, there's very few places which can even come close to meeting that. So what we end up doing is we end up having to compromise on something. Um, A lot of times water might be one of the big uh, discriminators. So instead of using raw water, say from wells or from a river, we end up buying treated water from the the municipality, which is not the ideal because it's more expensive. Um, But it is a way to close that gap getting the chance to pick your brain here and and how to better present sites to you and anybody who might be listening to this. You receive maybe some proposals, uh, which include sites. You're looking for uh, that Holy Grail site. Uh, How is it best presented to you? And I mean, you know, with maps, what kind of data are you looking for on the maps, outlines, uh, photography, aerial photography, GIS data, what is most helpful to you so that you can look at this and evaluate it pretty efficiently, at least in your initial rounds when you're going, yes, no, yes, no. I know I do that. You know, I like to get information in certain ways so I can make that quick sort of cursory uh, review and know I need to look more at this pile. The, the number one thing that communities can do is they can they can complete the RFI thoroughly and accurately. That is my number one thing. Um, You would be surprised how many incomplete, and I don't just mean an answer here or there, but things that are absolutely critical for the evaluation of this this site. If you submit an, uh, an RFI that's incomplete, that is the fastest way to get eliminated, even if you have a great site, because we just don't have time to come back to you and ask again for the same information. Beyond that, uh, we um, certainly visuals are very important. So um, having maps or site plans that communicate to us things like topography, any types of uh, encumbrances such as right-of-ways or easements, wetlands, where the utilities are, uh, where they're existing, where they're proposed, anything that you can do like that is very, very helpful for us. Um, But certainly, um, once we get a little bit further on into the process, um, then drone photography or virtual reality or even augmented reality where you can not just see the site, but you can also see where the infrastructure is located, and potentially even with some conceptual layouts on the on the site. Conceptual layouts, by the way, I, I really encourage communities to do that. And if they have a large site, maybe do half a dozen conceptual layouts that show different configurations of a building or multiple buildings, because it just helps us visualize. Chances are none of those are going to be exactly what my client is looking for, but there's going to be something that they can relate to 
say maybe the size of the building or the shape of the building or how it's oriented, how they're avoiding certain features such as wetlands and how that might be used as stormwater. Um, conceptual layouts do a great job of, of showing us, it's, it's kind of like staging a house. So you don't want to assume that the client can come in and visualize how their facility will sit on this this property. Some are much better equipped to do that than others. But the more that you can stage it for them and give them a visual sense of how it would be accommodated on that site, the more likely they are to select the site. And make it past those initial cuts, which is so important. Uh, we had a program a few years ago, which was just called Don't Get Cut. And we wanted more of our communities to get further in the in the process, not I like only, that. I'm, I may use that. <laughs> please, <laughs> you know it, and it helped uh, experience-wise, uh, helped our communities become better prepared. Uh, also, forced them to know their assets better, and was surprised at how many communities actually had some nice sites, but were not promoting them or presenting them uh, well, and therefore they weren't making it far in the process. And I think we work every day to try to make that uh, process better and get better information. We do a, um, a virtual site tour a lot of times with our projects, which is essentially, it's kind of taken the place of the consultant site visit. Um, the reason that we do that is that it, it, it's faster and it also cut, cuts cost. But it's also a really good first test of how together a community is. Can they orchestrate this virtual site tour. Um, typically, they last about three or four hours, and we cover almost everything that we would cover on a site visit, with the exception of the community tour. We don't physically do that, but we do give them the opportunity to provide us an overview of the, comp- uh, of the uh, community, and we don't do employer interviews. We do those by phone or, or some other, or we do a survey. And this is somewhere where they can really shine. Sometimes my clients are on the virtual site tour. We use GoToMeeting and uh, Google Earth. Um, a lot of times we prefer that the community prepare a presentation and take us through the agenda. Uh, and then we can switch back and forth to any visuals that they have or to Google Earth. Uh, and then that, a lot of times my clients are just listening in. And so it's really their first opportunity to get in front of the client and make a great impression. And it's amazing the difference in how well communities respond to these virtual site tours. Some of them are very together. They know exactly what they're doing. They've already thought about what the questions are that the client might have based on the weaknesses or the uh, risk that might be perceived at this particular site. And then some, you can tell it's just not not as well orchestrated. Maybe the team is not all singing from the same hymn book, uh, so to speak. Uh, So it's really amazing how that virtual site tour has a huge impact on whether or not you make it to the shortlist, which will actually receive a site visit from the consultant and the company. In this virtual site tour, have you ever arranged it where you can actually have live video feed from the site? So that you say, hey, can you look over in this area for us uh, using most likely drone footage, obviously, and have the uh, drone operator go over to the site. You can get a better look. Is that something they're including in this or maybe something you'd like to? We've looked at uh, drone videos before, but it's usually videos that have been taken previously. We've never done it live, but that's a really good idea. We may do that. 
you know, we're uh, leading the charge in unmanned systems in Mississippi, just happened to be the uh, FAA Center of Excellence uh, for unmanned aircraft systems at Mississippi State University. So. Yes, and I, I've not, it's been a while now, it's probably been almost 10 years ago, but I was looking in Mississippi and in the Pascagoula region, and we had a, I visited the Northrop Grumman unmanned aircraft facility um, in that location. And that was a long time ago. I was very impressed. The advances have been tremendous. And I think, you know, with available broadband in certain areas, uh, you know, that might be a reality. And maybe you'll be seeing more of that in the future. I think I've just given away part of the Mississippi playbook now since I came up with the idea, but uh, uh, we'll certainly be presenting it. And actually, best for you, because uh, if more clients are doing it, you can get some real-time looks and see something unique that you actually want to look closely at, then it's right there. Absolutely. Just like when you're on a site visit, when you go, hmm, what's that hill over there? <laughs> yes. I didn't see that stream originally. We Let's go take Or a that look. landfill across the street. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, how important is to have a, a diversity of sites? And not just for you. Obviously, you focus on uh, larger ones, but and I mean diversity of inventory in in your prepared and ready sites. I, I this is one of the things that I preach as well is that you really want to understand what your target markets are and make sure that you have sites that are appropriate for those targets. And one of the things that I see communities do, which I think is a mistake, is that they t- when they do their industry targets, they're so broad. For example, they may say aviation and aerospace, but they're obviously not equipped to go after every different segment of aviation and aerospace. For instance, are you going to be making the turbines or are you going to be making interiors? Do you going to do the navigation systems, um, the electric, the electronic wiring harnesses? Are you going to be making the carbon fiber that makes up the fuselage? So are you going to be doing MRO, which is not manufacturing at all? Um, but obviously is a very, very highly skilled, well-paying jobs. Um, so I encourage communities to really look critically, not just at industry sectors, but at specific processes or subsectors that they can compete well in, and then make sure that they have inventory to support those targets specifically. You mentioned to me previously when we spoke, don't be vanilla, ready with sprinkles. Uh, you know, what do you mean by that? Anything that you can do to make your site stand out among others, um, I think is is excellent. The, now, the more we certainly need vanilla sites, we certainly need your sort of twenty five to fifty acre sites with all your utilities, but not necessarily a uh, you know rich utilities. But you want to have something that's unique. I mean, if you have rail in your community, then having a large rail site that's fully served with utilities is a huge asset because there's just not that many of them. Um, if you have some unique um, workforce initiative or a certain cluster, then you can promote that. Um, it's really just understanding about what you're really good at and then letting the world know it. Should uh, communities and states be promoting these sites just on their own? Generally, I, I will see these pop up on social media from different communities. Hey, we've got this site. But is that actually, in your experience, uh, generating projects? I don't know. It doesn't generate projects, but it may generate 
interest in your location for those projects, especially if it's something really unique, like a, you know, like a dual, uh, dual served rail site, or a large existing building that's just been vacated, that's relatively new with high ceilings and wide base spacing. Um, but I, I think it does help just to be out there. I think that it's, it's more um, generally, it's probably a little bit more effective to market the community and the assets as a whole, as opposed to just the site. And I really like to receive visits from economic development organizations in my office in Greenville once a year or so, just to kind of bring me up to speed on what's going on in their community. I want them to come in with a message. I don't want them to just come and chit chat. I want them to tell me, you know, what has changed in the last year in your community that I really need to know about? What's your inventory like? What's your workforce like? Are there any big announcements that have happened or closures? Those are the things that we want to know because when our clients come to us, we want to make sure that we have our finger on the pulse of the economy of many different locations. And that's hard to do from sitting in your office. You know, you need to, you need to be out there, but you also um, need to be talking to the people that are on the ground. And the importance of closures in this process, and I, I bring this up because I, we had a discussion previously um, offline with a couple of my coworkers, and they didn't want to promote something, a closure, because it was a negative. And I said, Absolutely we've, not. We've it it reg- definitely is a negative for the people that are employed at that location. Mm-hmm. It's a negative for the community, but it's also a huge opportunity. We as site selectors, it's hard to say that we love to see closures because obviously we don't we don't want to see any manufacturing facility or any other facility close. But it does create an opportunity for our our clients. That means that there is a skilled and available workforce and in today's environment, that is worth gold record low unemployment rates very thin uh labor pool right now uh because of that low unemployment rate uh though uh, speaking in a, a previous episode of mississippi prospects we were also talking about how uh we're starting to see the labor pool increase a little that ticked up and therefore uh, the most recent unemployment rate actually went up even though we'd created uh, a number of jobs so some good signs there, at least that people are, are, are getting back into the working force or a new generation entering in. Right. Yep. And I think that in order to increase that workforce participation rate even more, we're going to have to see wages tick up some. Um, wages have been very, very sticky. And I think it's baffling a lot of economists. And I'm not an economist, but it's definitely baffling me. Um, but And sometimes we talk to, we do a lot of employer interviews. And we have to sort of sift through what they're saying. So sometimes we'll have an employer interview and they're pretty negative on the workforce. But if you start to look behind the curtain and you say, well, what kind of management style do they have? Um, how much are they paying their employees? What is their philosophy on giving promotions and raises? And it's hard to feel sorry for them when they say that they're, you know, they're paying $12 an hour. Um, if you want good quality workers, you need to be willing to pay them. And, and so we ask them, have you tried paying them more? And yeah, a lot of times we just get blank stares. But, but I do think that, that wages are, are um, seeing some pressure. Um, and I think that will be good for the economy. Hopefully they don't get you know, too out of control. But I think that it would be nice to see those, those tick up a little bit. Well, it'll be interesting to see in the uh, central Mississippi area, we're going to have a large manufacturer come online in the next couple of years, uh, more than 2,000 jobs uh, within 10 years. 
Uh, but there's a lot of uh, manufacturers already in the area who are anticipating maybe losing some of their labor force uh, for this new opportunity. Something like that obviously can actually help drive wage increases uh, to help in their retention efforts. Absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes we talk to communities where the the, uh, the employers are very nervous about another company coming and making an announcement there for that very reason. They're, they're afraid of losing uh, good people. That's right. In you, this environment, you have to, you know, basically where you, the people that are not employed right now are not the most employable. Um, and so a lot of the workforce is going to come from the the workers of other facilities. That's going to be the cream cream of the crop. Um, certainly, as more uh, as more opportunities are out there and the wages start to come up, then you'll bring more people into the workforce. The I've and I've always said that that even though if you have a transfer or shift of uh, employees going to a new manufacturer, you're creating new opportunities and more entry level opportunities at those other companies, manufacturers, and also uh, giving them the opportunity to gain new skills and get new training. Absolutely. Competition is great. Dee Dee Caldwell, get your sights ready. She may be coming to a community near you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Great to be here. Mississippi Prospects is brought to you by the Mississippi Economic Development Council, the Mississippi Development Authority, Cooperative Energy, Greater Jackson Alliance, Entergy, Mississippi Power, Tennessee Valley Authority, Watkins and Eager, Butler Snow, Jones Walker, and produced by Pottery Studios. If you have questions or comments, join us on Twitter at MEDC Info.